0: Welcome everyone, welcome to tonight's talk about the film Chinatown Files with director Amy Chen in conversation with filmmaker-activist Betty Yu. I'm JT Takagi of Third World Newsreel, a progressive media center that focuses on media by and about people of color, marginalized communities, and social justice issues. We do this through production, educational distribution, training and exhibitions, and events like this. This event is also being sponsored by the Documentary Forum at CCNY, a center in the City College of New York dedicated to supporting documentary film and nonfiction visual storytelling through multi-platform media. An additional co-sponsor is the Asian American and Asian Research Institute of CUNY. Thank you all for joining us tonight, and I want first to have you join me in acknowledging that in New York, we are on the unceded territory of the Lenni-Lenape, Kanarsi, Shinnecock, and Munsee peoples. We acknowledge and challenge the harm that continues to be inflicted upon indigenous and people of color communities here and abroad, which is why we all need to be part of the struggle for rights, equality, and justice. Some housekeeping notes. We're keeping the attendees muted, but welcome your questions and comments in the chat. Um, Let me first play you a trailer from the film, and then I'll introduce our speakers tonight. Uh, Chinatown Files streamed over the weekend and will continue to stream till Wednesday midnight, so if you haven't watched it yet, you still can. During the height of the Cold War of the 1950s, as fear of communism abroad spiraled into anti-communist hysteria at home, many Chinese Americans became the targets of fear and suspicion. They were hunted down, jailed, and targeted for deportation. The terror they faced left an indelible mark on the Chinese-American community. After a half a century of silence, some are speaking up for the first time. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for joining us tonight and for uh, making the film and uh, sharing it with everyone. Um, Amy Chen is the producer-director of the Chinatown Files, a little-known story of how McCarthyism impacted the Chinese-American community during the 1950s. Ms. Chen has worked in film production, distribution, exhibition, and was formerly the executive director of Women Make Movies. She currently works at the Smithsonian Institution. Good evening, Amy. (laughs) Hi,
1: JT. Uh, Actually, JT is very instrumental in making the Chinatown files. It wouldn't have actually been done without her help and support. So thank you very much for inviting me. And thanks uh, to Thurbo Newsreel, my distributor, a great organization, and to the Documentary Forum at City College, as well as the Asian American Research Institute. And I see that there are a number of OBs in the um, uh, uh, out there. So hello to everybody. Um, you know, this film was made over 20 years ago, and it actually took many years to make. It was it probably took over 10 to 12 years uh, to make. So uh, this is really past history, and I'm I was actually kind of surprised that it's getting a little bit of a renaissance these days, but I, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised because for some bizarre reason, the United States has always had this really push-pull relationship with China, whether it was in the 1800s or the 1900s or today, or during, you know, the Trump administration, It, it, the Chinese keep, you know, um, becoming targets in terms of the United States. So it's um, it's interesting to see this film now uh, because I never thought I would see anything like McCarthyism again. But uh, unfortunately, I, I think that uh, we might be seeing something like that again. So just a little bit about the film. Uh, it was made... Um, back in 2000, and, uh, and it really started because there was a little footnote in a friend of mine's book called New York Chinatown by Peter Kong and he had a little footnote about this case called the U.S. versus China Daily News, and it um, mentioned that these laundry workers and a Chinese uh, newspaper were um, sentenced for quote-unquote, trading with the enemy for sending money to their family in China, and I remember reading it and thinking, that's really bizarre. My family has always sent money back to China. The whole reason we're in the United States is so that we can send money and help our relatives, and I never really thought anything of it, and I was really shocked that, uh, There, there would be any kind of criminal charges leveled against anybody for doing such a a simple immigrant practice that I'm sure every single immigrant who's come to the United States has has always done. And so that started us on this journey to um, get the court papers to file for Freedom of Information Act requests to find out more about the case, to find out more about the individuals who were involved. And really, there was nothing else that was written at that time. There were no films. There were no uh, books. There were no articles. Nothing was written about what happened to Chinese-Americans during the 1950s. So Ying Chen, who Unfortunately, is not here, but she's in Hong Kong and was the co-producer and was a journalist and editor of a Chinese daily newspaper in New York Chinatown. And we set out to just start talking to everybody and anybody who might have known about that time period and might have known about the newspaper, the China Daily News, might have known about the laundry workers who were members of the Chinese Hand Laundry Alliance. And so we did over 100 oral interviews with people to try to piece together a story, try to understand what happened and to create a film about uh, this um, time period. And it, it took us mostly in to New York and in San Francisco, where we focused on In New York, we focused on the laundry workers who had started this newspaper, the China Daily News. And then we um, focused on uh, the San Francisco community that um, had been there for more generations than uh, most New Yorkers, but had a, a cloud over their head because of their relationship to a youth organization called Munching or the Chinese American Democratic Youth League. And so what what happened was really um, trying to understand how the US government um, looked at uh, the Chinese American community. And they really looked at it sort of as a monolith. And uh, they really looked at any uh, uh, Chinese American, even if they were citizens or not, as potential enemy spies for China. And so um, that's why, you know, in the beginning intro, we talk about how the Chinese community were targets of fear and suspicion because uh, anybody who came from China could be considered a suspect. And at that time, in 1949, um, China had become the People's Republic of China. The Chinese Communist Party had prevailed over Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government, and as a result, uh, anybody who was from China was considered an enemy of the United States because we were then involved in the Korean War. So I'm going to stop there. I mean, there's a lot to say. Happy to talk about a lot of different strands, but um, I think the bottom line was we were looking at sort of typical immigrant practices and how they were um, targeted uh, in terms of uh, being able to target Chinese-Americans for practicing these uh, typical um, sending money home to their relatives and um, obtaining U.S. citizenship, and and then uh, the stories of the individuals that we ended up focusing on.
0: So I have uh, two questions. One is, it took you a long time to do it, What? Why did it take so long and what uh, allowed you to to prevail to continue it? And and that's one question. The other question is, were people willing to speak to you? And you said you interviewed all these people. Were they, how difficult was it to get people to talk to you?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, uh, there are a lot of, those are good questions. I think that, uh, first of all, because I, as I said, there was nothing written about it. We didn't know what the story was to begin with, so it took a long time. Secondly, nobody wanted to talk about it. In fact, my own parents said to me that I shouldn't make this film because they were afraid that the Dung would target me and kill me for making this film. <laughs> I just, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. And then also, um, since this was my first film and also because... There weren't any films like this. It was just very difficult to make, uh, to get money for it. So the whole process took many years, and also because we were filing for a Freedom of Information Act requests to the U.S. Treasury, to Immigration Service, to FBI, etc. Um, the in those days, nothing was digitized. Uh, those took many, many years to get that information, and. Um, be able to follow up on on many of those uh, threads.
0: What do you think led um, people to finally agree to talk to you if they were worried about all these things?
1: We spent a lot of time uh, trying to cultivate relationships. We spent a lot of, in New York. We spent a lot of time with the Chinese hand laundry lines. They used to have an office over on um, Bowery, and we used to go there every Sunday and and talk to people, and just, you know, see how we could be helpful, and so forth, and finally, people started to see that we were serious about what we were doing. They thought that maybe it was time to talk about some of these stories, and finally opened up, and the same thing happened in San Francisco. I mean, we used to spend months going out there, and just talking to people, and uh, they didn't know who we were. They didn't understand why New Yorkers would be interested in their story and so forth. So it, it it took a lot of time to get people's trust and confidence. But I think that, one, we did start to shoot. And as we were shooting, we would show people, um, you know, some of our raw footage and they liked what they saw. And so they became more comfortable. But it, it took a long time.
0: Is there there anything that you think um, we should know that isn't in the film that you filmed and left out or things like
1: that? I mean, there's so many stories. And, you know, as soon as we finished the film, I mean, totally finished the film, all of a sudden the people that we'd been following for years said, oh, we really should have said more. Oh, we really could have told you more. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know. We didn't really tell you the whole story. So, yeah, I mean, there were so many different things. I mean, even, I don't know if how many people have seen the film, or um, if you're going to see the film, but there was um, a woman by the name of Kathy Lowe, who was married to an American citizenship, but because of her involvement in the group Munching or the Chinese American Democratic Youth League, um, she was not able to get her citizenship. And the lawyer who defended her had become a judge by the time we talked to her, and she refused to talk about her uh, case. But recently, when this film was shown in San Francisco, she was actually one of the panelists who spoke about the film afterwards. And so, I mean, people like that—I mean, they just—they just didn't want to jeopardize their livelihood. They just didn't want to talk about things at the time. And so today, um, a lot of those barriers have um, come down. So I'm, I'm really glad that, I mean, a, a lot of other people have started to um, do work that uh, has uncovered more information. And now there are some books that are written about this era. And there's, there's a lot more that I think can t- still be uncovered.
0: Um. Someone asked in the chat, "When did you start interviewing these uh, subjects? Because they look pr- pretty young. They were actually in the fifties, <laughs> but they look young in the film. And are they are they still alive?"
1: Uh, we started shooting, I think, in 1988, so a long time ago. And unfortunately, virtually every single person in that film has died with the exception of Connie Guang and uh, Eleanor Telemach. And for years, you know, all these people were still really active in the community and really active. Uh, and so we thought that they were going to live to 100. But unfortunately, uh, time caught up with them. So unfortunately, uh, there were only two of them left.
0: Oh, because some people are saying that you need to do a sequel, but it does occur to me if you did all these interviews, um, at the minimum, the interviews, the raw interviews should be used in, as a kind of oral history thing um, that you might consider compiling those.
1: Yeah, that would, you know, uh, we, we gave our archives to the um, UC Berkeley Asian American um, Library. So, that would be a great project for people to do. And uh, we've made the materials available. Um, Brene actually used them in her Asian American series. So definitely that's that's a great idea. And we had interviews with a lot of other people who didn't actually make the cut. So um, yeah, that would be great.
0: Right, so I was gonna bring on now our second speaker who's connected to this topic and to the film, um, Betty Yu, so uh, let me add her into this. Um, Betty Yu is a multimedia artist, photographer, filmmaker, and activist who integrates documentary film, new media platforms, and community-infused approaches into her practice. She is the co-founder of Chinatown Art Brigade a cultural collective using art to advance anti-gentrification organizing and teaches and curates along with her own media art practices. And uh, she's directly connected to these issues in terms of her family being part of the uh, Chinese Hand Laundry Alliance. And uh, she was impacted by Amy's film. And because uh, we're talking about how this relates to conditions today, I thought, and she's active now um, in Chinatown that it might be a good way to bring her in and have her talk uh, in this conversation as well. So welcome Betty.
2: Okay, great. I was like, I can't unmute. Okay. Okay. Uh, it was great to see everyone virtually. Um, thank you, Amy, for, for that. Uh, your film was really, really inspiring. I have so many questions now that I wrote down just after hearing you speak. Um, and I love all the chatter on the, um, on the chat box. Um, so my name is Betty Yu and I was born and raised in New York City. Um, I have to say that I saw the film when it first came out. Um, but you know, I didn't have any, d- Direct connection at the time. I didn't think I did at least. Um, you know, I had been I've been involved with labor organizing since the mid-90s, late 90s. Um and so it was just fascinating to me that we don't even know our own history um in New York City uh around particularly the Chinese left. Um and it was very inspiring to me. But 10 years later, uh, when my uh, my grandfather passed away a long time ago, when my grandmother passed away um, in the basement of our family house in Brooklyn Sunset Park, I found hundreds and hundreds of these photos of my grandfather, kind of like literally just like stowed away all dusty. I started looking through them and there was just like big family secret, I guess, that people never really wanted to talk about, including my grandmother and my parents, right? So my, uh, grandfather, and I'll share a few slides, um, in a second, but my grandfather, uh, Sue Wu, which was his paper son name, um, uh, came to the, US, to the U.S. in the 20s, but in 1933, um, he was one of the co-founders of the Chinese Hand Laundry Alliance in New York. Um, and um, I just found all these photos of meetings, of you know, the you know, the ambulance photo that you have that you share in your film. Um, a lot of familiar faces. Again, I can't put you know, I'm still trying to dig through stuff and and put names on on everything. But uh, just discovering this amazing. Be- then, then going back full circle to, to Amy's film and, and realizing what a huge role that my grandfather and the hand laundry workers at that time in New York City, um, the huge impact they had in, 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 in organizing folks for their own workers' rights as laundrymen, um, but also the support, um, um, that, that many of them provided, um, to, uh, Chinese back in China to fight in the war. Um, so I would just share my screen in um, a second. Let me just make sure I've got everything in line here. Um, and uh, yeah, this has been, you know, I've been working on this on and off for 10 years now. I did have a chance to interview some of the CHLA members, Chinese hand laundry um, members, not at all to the degree of Amy's film. And I you know, had so many questions about, yeah, you need to make a second film or or just even like a resource guide or something. Uh, for educators because there's so much to be learned from that moment, not just for Chinese Americans, but for Americans in general um, about U.S. history and xenophobia and racism. But anyway, um, so this is my grandfather, his, uh, you know, immigration papers. Um, so his paper son name is Su, uh, Wusu Learn, um, and um, wanted to share. So this is a photo that I later found out from other, a few experts like Renku Yu who wrote a book about Chinese Hand Laundry Alliance who teaches at Purchase. And so this is a photo um, of an annual gathering that the Chinese Hand laundry Alliance would have in Bear Mountain, New York. Uh, my grandfather is here second from the right. Um, and then, as you can see, because women uh, were not legally allowed, Chinese women were not le- legally allowed to come. And so um, you see a lot of, uh, I think they're Italian and uh, perhaps even Jewish uh, workers. There's a lot of solidarity at that time, especially, you know, um, during the, uh, uh, you know, the, the labor and the Communist Party organizing. Um, and then this is my grandfather on the left, same event. And then my grandmother on the right, and they operated uh, a small hand laundry, which is how they were able to sustain themselves. Um, and then this is a photo, which I folks saw the film. This is that moment where the, they basically paraded down with like the three, I think it was three uh, ambulances that they raised money for. I think $10,000 was just a lot of money back then in the late 30s um, to send to China on uh, these ambulances. And my grandfather is right here standing in front of uh, one of the ambulances. So he helped fundraise. Um, and then these are other meat, you know, photos I can gather from like some had writing in the back, some didn't. Um, uh, but these are, uh, this is my uh, uncle. So they were all hand laundry uh, workers, some of these folks who I knew them when I was little. I can recognize their faces, but this is, this photo is probably in the fifties that it was taken. Um, and then like many, um, Chinese American men, um, they, he joined the army to fight the Japanese. That was his impetus to, 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 really fight, uh, the Japanese during World War II. And as you can see here, he put uh, the Chinese hand laundry alliance as his home address, which I thought was interesting, but he enlisted. And then my grandmother was able to come after that. Um, And then just to to show how I've integrated into my own work in the last 10 years, um, the archives and then this phone, you can pick up and listen to stories actually from um, from different um, from uh, Henry Chen, who's one of the hand laundry workers and Renku Yu, who's like a a, um, one of the experts uh, of this on this issue. Um, and then I'll just show, I'll end by just showing a really short clip. Um, so this is a show recently in Chinatown celebrating resilience and resistance in Chinatown. And um, this is more of uh, these photos and collages that I made out of all of my grandfather's basically archives that uh, no one knew about. Um, and the, these are the FBI files, as you can see at Daily News and Chinese Hand Laundry Alliance were Along with groups in San Francisco, which I know the film touches on, um, but these are just some of those um, snapshots from the FBI files. Some are still, I think, redacted. Um, But I will just um, share a really short clip. Ah, because I just found out from Amy that um, Henry Chin, who I interviewed, passed away from COVID recently, and I just wanted to show a really short clip.
3: 晚上完緊個走 Gola
2: Um, I'll stop there and I can, uh, I think someone will put links into the film if you want to watch it. It's short, it's very short. Um, Yeah, I didn't, I just found out he passed away and I'm very sad about that. Um, He was really, I've visited him a number of times. He was really wonderful and he was actually looking through photos with me and he was like, that's me. And that was like from 30 or 40 years ago. He said, I had hair back then. There was hair and it was black and He was just such a wonderful man. And um, he shared a lot of great stories about FBI following him as well. And he told them to F off and, you know, (laughs) go have a couple of coffee downstairs. He was hilarious. Um, And there was a moment in the film where he was trying to remember who my grandfather was. I kept saying the name over and over again. He showed me the founding um, because their archives, they just had sent it to China as it was going to be a part of an exhibit. This was 10 years ago, I think. Um, And he had one book left from the founding And he was like, who's your grandfather here? And then I pointed him out. He goes, oh, my God, he was my mentor. Oh, my God. You know, he was like so much older than me. But so anyway, it was um, it had a huge impact um, on me, your film, Amy, um, in terms of just that journey, uh, being able to having the courage to actually be able to uncover this because nobody in my family want me to talk about this. It was like, why would you talk about this? He was a communist. (laughs) <laughs> you know, plain and simple. It's something you don't talk about, and I think it's impacted us to tilt it to this day, where we buy into the stereotype of Chinese being, you know, docile, and we don't want trouble, and you know, just we just go about our march, marching orders. Um, anyway, but yeah, I I have lots of questions for Amy, but I I know other people too do too, so I just I'll stop
0: there. Well, no, ask your questions, and then we'll get to other people's as well. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, I think Amy has, I don't know if Amy, you had your hand up as a response, but oh. Oh, okay. Should I ask my question?
0: I uh, think Amy
1: wanted to. Yeah, well, I okay. actually just wanted to say something for context, which is that one of the reasons the Chinese Hand Laundry Alliance was such an important organization. And to be honest, I believe that it was one of the first uh, civil rights organizations for Chinese certainly for Chinese Americans or Asian Americans, uh, when it was founded in 1933. And what was interesting about the hand laundry and why it was such a, why the FBI and others thought it was such a powerful organization was that they um, they originally wanted all the hand laundries to post a bond um, when they formed their um, laundry shops, and they were supposed to post a, a $1,000 bond. And there was no way any of these hand laundries were going to be able to afford a $1,000 bond. And so the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, you know, so all these hand laundries kept asking them. They they were the main, you know, recognized organization that worked with City Hall and everybody else. And everybody kept asking them to do something. And they kept saying that they were going to do something. And they even took money from people and said that they were going to have their lawyers look into it, et cetera. They shouldn't have to worry about it. And in the meantime, you know, the government was going to fine all these people for not having this $1,000 bond. And so one of the reasons the hand laundry formed was in order to fight this um, bond. And what they did was they um, marched on City Hall. They organized all the hand laundry. They had petitions, etc., to city hall. And it was the first time that the Chinese had really tried to confront city hall on an issue that was really near and dear to their hearts. And much to everybody's surprise, um, mostly illiterate laundry workers um, were able to prevail and they were able to win their case. And so the city struck down the requirement of having this bond. And so as a result, everybody joined the hand laundry. So anybody who had a hand laundry um, would join the organization because they knew that they were going to protect um, their livelihood and they were going to protect them. So, um, you know, they weren't, they weren't set up as a political, um, per se, organization. Although, to be honest, they, they were political and um, there was support. In terms of um, uh, the main organizers, were very progressive, but they certainly, you know, were not sort of this um, communist organization that was then portrayed. But they then did support the war effort against the Japanese. And what everybody would say is that um, everybody wanted to f- fight the Japanese, and so it, it wasn't it wasn't a matter of Um, supporting the communists or the nationalists, it was really, you know, what they would say is that they were just trying to help China win. And the communists were doing more, as far as a lot of people felt, than the nationalists. And so, um, but it was, it was really a mark of pride for the laundry workers to have been able to raise that much money through their dinners and fundraising to be able to support The um, purchase of these ambulances and to get them into the rural areas where they were really needed. So it it was a, you know, I forgot what the number of of, um, members were, but it was a very large um, membership, and uh, it created a huge amount of support for um, the local community that was outside of these sort of um, family associations. So it was a, a first democratically elected organization of Chinese Americans.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I think I've read numbers that it was as many as 5,000 at one point. Um, I think it, it was, I think it was higher. It was higher. I know yes. after the McCarthy era, like you said it, I know it declined greatly. I mean, even Jimmy, um, I know, I know you you talk about that a lot too. Um, and um, yeah, no, I'm glad, you know, it's, just learning a lot, just listening to you um, talk, and it's like a history lesson, you know, because for, you know, when I interviewed Jimmy and talked to other folks that were in the, in the office, you know, it was clear to me, you're right, there were folks who were political visionaries, maybe revolutionaries, and then there were folks who were like, this is my bread and butter, I'm going to join this organization, mean, I remember, I think it was Jimmy who was saying, yeah, you know, they kept confusing us with the CCBA one, and we weren't, we were, we were, you know, I mean, some of them were, I mean my grandpa, which I, I don't feel uncomfortable saying this now. He he was definitely a communist. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid and, you know, there was he was a Maoist, honestly. He had like the, the books, the the whole the whole thing, you know. Um, and um, you know, he, he had a portrait of Mao and I think his views changed later on, you know, um, especially later in his life before he passed away in the eighties. But uh but you're you're right about that. It's um something that I would love to to learn more about and I think the interviews that you have like I was just thinking what amazing resource that would be even Mm -hmm. if it's just the audio or just clips uh for for so many people because it's so relevant today as we know with anti-Asian hate and violence you know COVID related um but it's been you know it's 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 it's, uh it's it's been ongoing and and we know that um you know, we know that we need material like your film to continue to inspire us. I mean, one question I wanted to ask you, and I know this is the question I would ask myself and just thinking through the impact that the film has to this day, the resonance, re- resonance with myself as a, not a, I'm not a millennial, I'm not, you know, I'm not like super old, but I'm in the middle somewhere where um I feel like, you know, we are Chinese Americans, especially those who are second, third, fourth generation. There's this feeling that, you know, you don't look back. Um, you look forward and um, you don't get involved in political things, right? Um, there's this sharp divide between the folks who are in Chinatown now who are poor working class, monolingual speaking. Um, and then this kind of the crazy rich Asians, right? This this kind of uh, false kind of perception of, of Chinese um, having climbed the ladder, you know, I think Chinese, I think the Chinese have the largest uh, wealth gap. Uh, I remember reading in the New York Times of any ethnic group. So we have the largest wealth gap between the rich and the poor uh, amongst uh, Asian Americans, that is. And I'm just wondering if you think that film, you know, how, how can this film really kind of um, combat and challenge those stereotypes that you know, Chinese back back in the, you know, I didn't know about the left in the fifties. I mean, your film was so educational and it continues to be. And it's like they have paved the way for us who were we continuing to do activism in Chinatown. Like, how do we um break that barrier? Because I think that people still there's this like false perception that we don't rock the boat, we don't really get involved. And we saw that 30% of Chinese Americans voted for Trump. So that's also really scary. Um But yeah, I think there's just so much relevance to this film and and for for younger folks today. And I don't know what your thoughts are, where where the left is now and and, and all of that of of folks. But yeah, that would be my question.
1: Well, I think what happened with the McCarthy era was that we lost a generation. So all those people in the 60s, um, you know, from the 50s and 60s became you know, their views were repressed and they were silenced. I mean, the fact that my own parents not, I mean, my parents were not progressive at all or anything, but the fact that they would have these crazy ideas that just speaking, just recording history was going to get you killed was just a really crazy reaction to politics, right? But they grew up in China. They grew up during the, um, you know, World War II. So they saw what happened with the nationalists relative to the communists, you know, and so they just felt like, uh, you would get persecuted for your views. And I think that that's the importance of this film, that there were a lot of people who did, um, defend their views. They, a lot of the people in my film really felt that they were patriotic to China. I think that there were, um, Communists, but they were also there were a lot of other people who were supportive of a new China of the fact that uh, they felt that there was going to be a new beginning with the Communist Party, and so most people would probably say that they were supportive of um, the Chinese Communist Party because they felt that they were the only ones who were going to be able to um, make China strong, and that was the most important. Aspect of their support, and so they all thought that they were just being patriotic Chinese. They didn't think that they were. uh, Most of them were not very political. There, there were people who were political, but um, that wasn't the majority of the people. But this chat, I mean, people have said a lot of really interesting things in the chat that
2: I don't know if you want to open it up to. It's on fire, the chat. It's, it's (laughs) popping.
0: So maybe we should take some of the things in here. Um I know that there uh there was one person who was asking about um that I think a family member said that that they had been forced to donate to the KMT in Chinatown um and that whether you thought that that was uh something that would be true.
1: I don't know. Um Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, uh, the fact that your grandfather didn't want to put his home address and put down the Hand Laundry Alliance, I mean, people wanted to be able to save their jobs and so forth. I mean, um, I forgot who said it, but uh, you know, the FBI investigated so many people and so many people were terrorized as a result, and Jimmy Chin and Henry Chin are very strong uh, people, and so they could deflect what the FBI did to them, but many other people, you know, tore apart their families. Um, Kathy Lowe spoke about that in the film in terms of how, you know, she was pulled into the FBI's cars and interrogated. Her husband was interrogated. He was fighting in Korea and they were interrogating him about his membership and the, you know, uh, munching. And it it was just very, very, it was just very difficult. So I could see why people would think that they needed to donate to the Kuomintang because they needed to show that they weren't communists. Otherwise, they get put on a list and their mail gets opened, their neighbors get questioned, their jobs get questioned, they lose their jobs. I mean, you know, it was, and, you know, if you're not making very much money and you don't have, as Jimmy said, you either worked in restaurants or you worked in laundries. And if you got banned in those two industries, what, what are you going to do? So you had to do things that might not have been comfortable for you.
0: Someone asked, uh, when the PRC took the, took the place of Taiwan at the, in the UN in 1970, was there another wave of FBI investigations? Do you know about that?
1: Yeah, there definitely were. There were all these delegations. I, I know of people in San Francisco in particular, and there were some in New York also who were part of those delegations, and they got investigated Um they had the whole ping pong diplomacy. And so people who were involved in that um, got investigated. So it's, again, I, the reason I mentioned the Cold War is because the U.S. since 1882, when the Chinese Exclusion Act um, was enacted, I, you know, the Chinese have always been a target for the United States. I, I really have never understood it, but there's this hysteria over China. And uh, you see it so many times in terms of all these different acts. And it's um, really unfortunate. And we're seeing it again today. I mean, there's all these cases of, you know, um, the Justice Department going after Chinese scientists for espionage, you know, quote, unquote, espionage acts. And after years of investigating people, they've said that, oh, they actually, you know, um, were not spies for China but that's after they've ruined their careers right so it's um, it's difficult
0: okay well we're seeing in the chat is a lot of people citing their own personal histories and uh, um, some references to other uh, websites that have information and things so I hope everyone's keeping track of that so that they can check out these other sources on uh, information about this but I don't see more questions. I see a lot of statements. <laughs> so Betty, I'm throwing it to you now. I was
2: like, I can't speak. Um, uh, <laughs> I was just gonna ask, um, Amy, if you if it sounds like there was a, one, a screening recently, maybe in San Francisco, if I understood correctly but mm-hmm. um you know I maybe amongst us here you know as educators or part of various organizations and I mean I think that this is again so relevant especially with the chatter on um here on on the chat but it's just uh I think not only can people relate to the film maybe drawing from their fam- own families sort of hidden histories or skeletons in the cl- skeletons in the closet but I also really really do think it can be so I mean inspiring is not the right because obviously we know what happened right when they were all innocent and they were still indicted they made they the basically they wanted to make an example out of them and some of them died and you know you know committed suicide obviously that part is just devastating but what was inspiring for me was to hear their stories about how they found a sense of place and belonging um and even to to this day you 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 hear the same thing the you know, in the Chinatowns in New York City, I mean, I grew up in the Sunset Park one, but in Chinatown, because of uh, displacement and waves of, of gentrification um, that has accelerated, it's it's still very much under attack. And in, in many ways, um, I feel like the, it, you know, it's insidious, but it's, it's showing up in these different ways of really trying to tear apart Chinatowns, actually. Um, and um, you have, yeah, again, just going back to You know, the newer generation of folks who are um, some are returning back and trying to um, be part of community efforts and others honestly want to exploit it, to be honest, like, you know, uh, coming in, opening up businesses that are not for people, working people in Chinatown. And I just think that the film can create so much uh, uh, discussion and, and dialogue that these different perspectives can, can really come up. And I'm just wondering if you are interested in that at all and having the film have a revival tour or something like that in the Chinatowns um, that I know I'm, I'm connected to it for you, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people here are um, on this call, but.
1: Yeah, no, that would be great. It was shown by the um, Chinese historical society in San Francisco. And one of the people in my film, Hemlock Lai is, uh, was really important in that organization and. Uh, another person in my film, Professor Chi Wang from uh, UC Berkeley, uh, was part of that screening that we did a few months ago and um, was also part of that film. And we've been trying to get him, he was working on a book on the 1950s, and we've been trying to get him to publish that, but he still hasn't had time because he's such an activist that he's always doing something else. But you know, I'd be really interested in hearing what's going on in New York Chinatown because I've heard all these different things, but I've moved out of New York, so I'm just curious what's going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I know, well, I'm sure others can chime in. uh, Just to kind of sum up, I'm very involved in the anti-displacement struggle, of course, so this kind of through a specific lens, uh, but, you know, um, since 9-11, I mean, it sounds like you moved away about maybe a little bit after that, you know, as, as you probably know, you know, Chinatown um, really uh, suffered quite a bit. There was all this money that was supposed to trickle down to everyday people and businesses, but it didn't. It was basically a land grab for developers. And now we're seeing laws that, you know, zoning laws that were passed a little bit after 9-11. We're seeing all these kind of condos and luxury developments by the two bridges, if you remember by the water, you know, there's these like big luxury towers going up. Um, And more recently, um, the Museum of Chinese in America has been a a target uh, because they've accepted $35 million um, from the city in return for their blessing for a a jail, a new jail, one of four jails in the city. Um, And so that has uh, reinvigorated a lot of young, a lot of new energy, a lot of young folks who um, see this as a stab, you know, Back, backstabbing, I guess, um, I mean, the museum hasn't really been that accountable to the community or thought of as an ally for a very long time. But particularly now, um, you know, uh, the person who's like the co-chair of the museum is Jonathan Chu, who's like a third generation large developer in Chinatown, and also uh, fired workers from the only unionized restaurant, Jing Fong, recently. And so kind of all things are kind of leading to how these issues around labor, exploitation, gentrification, incarceration, um, the elite, elite of Chinatown, the old guard is still holding power in these ways that look different now, you know, it's through arts institution, it's through um, luxury development, it, it looks different, but it's the same kind of power structures in, in, in many ways, so that's kind of like a, a, a sum up, and a lot of people are also putting stuff into the chat as well. Um, at least from my perspective of, of the issues that I've I've been most closely, um, yeah, Corky Lee, yeah, he was very critical of you know Mocha as well in recent years, um, yeah, and um, they haven't denied the money, and um, it's it's really sad because they claim they stood for Black Lives when George Floyd died and they you know did the statement, uh, but supporting a new jail and, and taking thirty five million dollars for to support a new jail, I don't think is being An ally to the black community at all. Um, So folks have been protesting like five times a week there, Um, you know it's really amped up Um, this other group Chinese Staff and Workers Association has really been critical in leading that that uh, fight so.
1: Because of the um, fire is that the reason they
2: got money from the city. No so this the, so they got money in 2018 2019 so when the the idea is that the jail Rikers, which you know one of the is the largest jail installation in the country worse conditions so the idea would be that they were the city de blasio is going to build humane cages i call them jails in the city so when they were in talks um, they were talking about community give backs and community benefits and so in 2018 2019 Is when it was revealed that Mocha would get this money. Um, so it wasn't and then the fire happened what, January 2020, I think. It was or December maybe 2019. So it was separate, separate from that, um completely separate from that. Um but um, you know, hopefully they do the right thing, you know, we're all holding out and
0: (laughs) but we'll kind of see, but there's a lot of chatter about this issue. there's a lot.
2: (laughs) trust the, me uh, i hear it all
0: oh uh, <laughs> I,
2: I i was just to state pretty, what's going on uh,
0: yeah pretty divisive <laughs> issue right now um among yes. a lot of people so yes. and people have you totally fallen understand. on different sides of this yes. and stuff like that but um in terms of viewing the impact on china it's very clear that it's a uh, becoming a developer's target and uh so it's a uh, It's upsetting, in terms of thinking of the community being able to maintain itself. Um, So, um, okay, and
2: can can I say one more last last thing, which is because of China's rise in becoming a state capitalist, uh, basically capitalist state. Um, And I'm not trying to make any uh, remarks either way, but you know, there's been a slew of money coming in to develop the Chinatowns, I mean, New York City, right, in general, but they've been putting a lot of money in warehousing property in Flushing, Queens, and where I grew up in Brooklyn, and in Manhattan's Chinatown, you know, um, it's its really hard, because they're, you know, when we, t- you know, people, you know, tell me, ask me all the time, like, why are you fighting people that look like you, right, but that's always been the case. In the garment, you know, when my, my mom and dad are garment workers, when they were my mom was part of that fight. The contractors look like my mom. Right. And so these developers are it's really insidious. I mean, they're getting so many tax breaks um, for building those towers by the water. Um, but they're not for people that are of my class that look or like my parents. Right. I mean, literally so many of those apartments have been sold already and they just sit empty and idle. You know, some Chinese investor paid two million dollars for a small apartment and it just sits idle. And we know that, you know, the homeless crisis has has risen quite a bit in the city. So it's terrible, I think, like to separate the nationalist part from like actually what everyday people are facing, real everyday Chinese Americans is facing is, is really uh, important to make that, t- to distinguish the two, because I think the media tries to conflate quite a bit because we look the way we look, I guess. So I just wanted to say that.
1: Yeah, I would blame the media for a lot of these divisions. And I also would say that I think that there are areas of unity. I think that um, China, Chinese from mainland versus Chinese Americans or Asian Americans, I mean, they all recognize the kind of anti-Asian violence, whether, you know, the media over there is, you know, promoting it to show how terrible American capitalism is versus over here where it just shows how terrible <laughs> People are, uh, and how racist people are. I mean, th- there are certainly areas where I think that people can join together in terms of having um, similar, uh, you know, points of view. So I wouldn't. I, d- I don't know. I mean, to be honest, a lot of the money that comes from China it's because people want to get their money out of China, and real estate is the easiest way for them to do that. And you know. I remember being in some small town in Germany and talking to some developer, and they were saying that 50 to 70% of the units were being purchased by Chinese who were just purchasing it through the Internet. They literally would just see the properties on the Internet, figure out whether the demographics would support, you know, rentals or whatever for that um, property, and they would purchase it sight unseen because they... Had they really wanted to try to diversify their holdings and get money out of China. And at that time, now it's actually stopped, I think. But at that time, they were trying to um, get money out of China so that um, they would have some other assets. But it's, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it, it's not as if China is so wealthy. I mean, I think the GDP is still $10,000 or something for um, average Chinese. So it's not as if they are so much wealthier. It's just that they do have the most billionaires in the world currently. So, and they have, you know, 1.3 billion people. So if you do the math, I mean, there's certainly going to be a lot of people. But um, uh, that's, that's, um, that is. Uh, going to be a problem.
0: Um, I'd like to bring this back to the film and um, and how it can be used in situation now. An idea of a tour sounds like a good idea. Um, and some people asked, uh, what else do you hope for this to do with this film, Amy?
1: Well, you know, somebody mentioned having a resource guide, and I think that that would be a really, I think, Um, That would be a really great idea. I think that a curriculum guide is something that we had started and it was used in some of the schools, but I don't think it got very far. So um, that's definitely something that would be helpful. And certainly I think the idea of trying to get some of these oral histories out and trying to um, uh, have more of either the outtakes or other um, means of you know, telling further stories about this would, would be a really great idea. So, um, but Thermal Newsreel has been really great in terms of organizing um, screenings. And so, if people are interested, they should definitely contact Thermal Newsreel uh, if they know of any schools or organizations that'd be interested in seeing it. So,
0: okay. Well, thank you. I know. In the chat, there's gonna be a lot of discussion continuing about the situation right now. What we're hoping is that things like this will provoke more talk among people and um but also promote change in terms, specifically in terms of things like what are the the impact on the Asian American and Chinese American communities, whether it's gentrification or the anti-Asian violence and um discrimination that uh, hopefully using this film will help to at least make people aware and and rethink about how they've been thinking about Asians and Chinese Americans. So um, I want to thank everyone for coming tonight, and I want to thank both Amy for her film and Betty for her work and for participating tonight and for her activism. And, uh, we hope all of you, uh, if you did not see the film, you still have a chance. We're extending the streaming until Wednesday night. So please, uh, tell your friends to join in. And if people think about, um, using it in other situations with their community groups or in schools and things like that, please, uh, contact us. So, um, thanks everyone for coming tonight. And, uh, and oh! because we're getting to the end of the year. If you have attended this event and any other Third World Newsreel seminar, please consider donating to The Third World Newsreel. We're a nonprofit and a very tiny group, but um, we do a lot of training and seminar, free seminars like this, and we'll be continuing to do that, and with your help, we can keep doing that. Uh, thanks, everybody.